I remember this. There was an aroma pervading the whole of the Tvaitabitzik, and it was the aroma of Slivovitz and Pfefferkittel, uh, pep- pepper biscuits, uh, or today we call them onion biscuits. Manjitsky makes them, but they're not quite authentic. Uh, and you could smell this all over the Tvaitabitzik. February 2007. Fred Barshak is being interviewed by Dr. Bea Lefkowitz in London for the Association of Jewish Refugees Video Testimony Archive, Refugee Voices. Friday night you had a full menu. You had a full menu. You would start, You would have a choice of stuffed cup, six other hors d'oeuvres, at least. Uh, Friday night, there was usually only one soup which was chicken soup, with whatever you wanted in it. Fred spends a lot of time, a lot of time, discussing food. Perhaps not surprisingly, because many of his most vivid memories from before he left Vienna at the age of seven on a kinder transport were of the popular kosher restaurant that his father owned, Restaurant Barshak. The chicken soup of Vienna tastes Somewhat different. And it's very simple. It's the water. There is a famous biscuit made in Vienna called Manneschnitten. They are amongst the best biscuits in the world. And all the imitations. And then they could have roast chicken, roast ducks, braised beef, which we call... um, uh, It's a piece of meat. The best piece is actually top rib, baked in the oven, sitting on a bed of vegetables. The fish was always there. The gefilte fish the stuffed carp, and above all, stuffed hecht, pike, which is a labor of love. You have a recipe, onions, almonds, a little salt, pepper, and certainly sugar if you come from Galicia. And then you mix the fish, and then you you, you, put, you put the fish back sure. into the stock. It was different at Barshak. Separate. They still used a little bit of smoked meat as well as non-smoked meat. Where does this come from? From his first marriage. The Hungarian Jews, they put in some smoked meat. Before there was the Holocaust, before the kinder transport, Jewish life formed an important part of European culture for 2,000 years. Of course, For the majority of those 2,000 years, there were no audio or video recording devices to capture what life was like. That's where oral history comes in. So when we listen to Fred Barshak talking about the aromas and flavors of Viennese Jewish food in the 1930s, he's providing us with a window into parts of Jewish existence that have been passed down from generation to generation. The Holocaust would eventually sever those centuries of traditions, throughout most of Europe anyway. And I can't help but wonder how many of those parents who made the horribly painful decision to put their children onto trains and boats to Britain had an inkling somewhere in their minds that they were helping to ensure that someone might survive to tell future generations 
the story of what once was. Welcome to Kinder Transport, Remembering and Rethinking, a production of the Association of Jewish Refugees. I'm your host, Alex Maus. On this podcast, we make use of the AJR's Refugee Voices Archive, video testimonies for more than 250 Jewish refugees of Nazism, to shed light on the history of the Kinder Transport, the rescue operation in 1938 and 39 through which 10,000 Jewish children fled Nazism in search of safety in Britain. You can learn more about the AJR at ajr.org.uk and about the Refugee Voices Archive at ajrrefugeevoices.org.uk. Episode 2, What Was Left Behind? Every refugee story involves leaving a place that was once home, invariably in terrible circumstances. Exploring these stories requires us to gain an understanding of those terrible circumstances, but also to consider what that place was like before its time of crisis, perhaps in happier times, or at least in more stable ones. Otto Deutsch, who you might remember hearing from in episode one, describes his family's humble living conditions in Vienna. Well, the apartment, um, nowadays people wouldn't live in the conditions like that. We had um, the traditional Simbaküche cabinet, which means one room, a kitchen and a box room. Remember, there were four of us. Uh, the toilet was outside, shared part four families. There's always a waiting period outside. Uh, and the water was outside, a kitchen without any water. But, you know, we we didn't know any better. We, we didn't know anything else, and that was life. But we were happy because we were together. And um, it is so, as I said, I know I've said this before, but it is so remarkable that now that I'm talking about how we lived, I remember those steep stairs onto the first floor. I remember the drafty kitchen. Um, central heating, my God, that was to come years afterwards. And uh, we had what was known a kachel oven. I don't quite know what you would call this in English. It was a stove, um, like a big piece of furniture more than anything. No open fire. And... Um, it gave up heat, but the winters in Vienna still are very cold, and they certainly were, were cold. I want to avoid painting a picture of Jewish life with overly broad brushstrokes. Of course, there was tremendous diversity amongst Jews, from one country to the next. Urban Jews versus rural Jews. Religious versus secular. Wealthy versus poor. Here is Ursula Gilbert, who was 15 years old when she left Berlin on a kinder transport, recalling the upper-middle-class synagogue her family attended there. 
We used to go to synagogue. We used to go to the Oranienburger Straße. They had very nice posh seats. I, I, I know I always said, you know, my father, they were all boys in the family. My father, I think it was so that they helped the congregation in Oranienburger Straße when he was a young boy with money and they had very, very good seats at the bottom. I don't know whether you realize how big that synagogue used to be. It was a very big one. And we used to sit upstairs. And I remember with my grandmother and my mother, and we didn't have seats. My, my sister and I, we had to sit on the stairs by the side there. Yes, we used to go for the high holy days, but not not Friday nights. In trying to highlight different elements of everyday Jewish life in Europe, I could have played for you any one of dozens of different testimonies in which refugees describe going to a particular synagogue. But I wanted you to hear about the synagogue that Ursula describes on Oranienburger Strasse in Berlin for a reason. It's called the Neu Synagogue, that's German for New Synagogue, and I feel like it tells a much wider story of the complicated relationship between Jews and Germany, between Jewishness and Germanness. The synagogue was opened in 1866, right at a time when Germany's states and indeed many other European countries were enacting laws for the emancipation of Jews. These laws generally conferred full citizenship and the rights that came with it to Jewish populations. No longer were Jews to be considered a sort of nation within a nation. Emancipation said, you can be both German and Jewish at the same time. These two things aren't mutually exclusive. Meanwhile, many Jews in cosmopolitan hubs like Berlin were eager to assert that this too was how they felt. Their religious observance became a bit more modern and less strict. They were becoming more integrated into mainstream society, professionally, socially, culturally. And this is the story that the Neu Synagogue tells. It is huge and ornate, more like a cathedral than the little houses of prayer that Jews had typically worshipped in in previous centuries. It's also highly visible, located right on a busy thoroughfare for all to see. Looking at it, you can't help but get the sense that the Jewish community of 19th century Berlin is trying to make some particular points. We are proudly Jewish and German. We are part of the landscape of this capital city. The way that you, Christian Germans, balance your religious identity alongside your national identity is no different to how we do it. But 70 years on from the opening of the Neu Synagogue, Ursula Gilbert sat in its balcony with this relationship between Jewishness and Germanness having taken a dramatic and perilous turn. Dr. Anthony Grenville is an historian who was the co-founder of the AJR's Refugee Voices Archive. He's also the chair of the Research Center for German and Austrian Exile Studies. I asked him about the anti-Jewish laws that took effect when the Nazi party came to power. Greatly and almost immediately, uh, of course, Jews 
became, um, they lost effectively their protection against anti-Semitism because the, the rule of law ceased to operate, um, not at once, but um, pretty quickly, of course, um, certainly after the Reichstag fire of uh, February 28th, 1933, that's only uh, about four weeks after Hitler became Chancellor, people would be picked up more or less at random, taken to places like the Gestapo HQ at Prince Begentenstrasse and beaten up. Um, a lot of Jews ha who were sort of known to the Nazis as political enemies had to flee. Um, in April 1933, there was the boycott of Jewish businesses, shops and businesses, um, state organized. In, later in the same month, there was uh, the mass sacking of Jews in the public service, civil service, public legal service, education, which all counted in Germany as civil service. In other words, many of the areas where a public health service too, where precisely where the established Jewish community was settled, followed in 1935 by the Nuremberg Laws, which gave Jews the status of second-class citizens. And then, of course, when we come on to the uh, so-called Crystal Night, an open reign of terror against Jews. How do some of the refugees who eventually fled from this terror on the kinder transport remember experiencing this period of Nazi persecution? How did it play out in their lives at the time? Here is Fanny Bogdanov recalling starting her German schooling at the age of six in 1933. She was the only Jew in her class. And it was drilled into the school children from their first day at school by having anti-Semitic songs every morning at morning assembly. And the teachers, of course, instead of refusing, they joined in. If the teachers there had had any sense of decency, they would not have made the children sing these anti-Semitic songs. That's my first memory, my most vivid memory of the anti-Semitic songs that the children had to sing in morning assembly. I, of course, stood still and refused to say a word. I did not open my mouth, needless to say. In Austria, Nazi anti-Jewish laws came much later with its annexation in 1938. And rather than building up slowly over time, as they did in Germany, the laws and the social behaviors that they encouraged took effect dramatically and almost suddenly. Otto Deutsch was 10 years old in 1938. No sooner did 1938 arrive, there also arrived a different feeling. Somehow I felt things were changing. Now, I couldn't figure out how and what. It's difficult to figure out, remember my age. But by the time February came along, some of the lads wouldn't speak to me anymore. What's ever done? What's, what's, what's going on? And I heard whispers. Their father had joined the party. The party? What are they talking about? What party? And, yes... Mr. Philip would not allow Kurt to come to us. 
Kurt and I had a wonderful relationship, you know, because we had the best of both worlds. Uh, and our Hanukkah, he would come to see our menorah, the candles lit, and I would go in and enjoy Father Christmas. For us lads, it was marvelous. But um, in 1938, things were changing rapidly. The grown-ups were talking more excited. The conversation in the coffee house became more animated. Now, I could make none of this. And all of a sudden, that hurt more than anything else. I was no longer chosen for the school football team. I remember I was 10. That hurt. Why, what have I done? I've, I've played as good as ever. And then I was to begin to hear the dreaded word, Jude, Jude, Jude. Most people who've learned about the Holocaust will be familiar with the events that took place on the night of the 9th of November, 1938, often referred to as Kristallnacht, German for the night of broken glass. Though that's far too euphemistic for many people's liking, I prefer to use the term the November pogrom. Whatever its name, this was a night of sheer horror for Jews in Germany. Jewish businesses were destroyed and looted, homes smashed and invaded, innocent people beaten in the streets, tens of thousands of men arrested in an orchestrated campaign of government-sponsored terror. I can't even imagine how these events must have affected the children who witnessed them. Here's Rudolf Goldberg describing what he remembers seeing in his town in the Upper Silesia region. We live in a flat together, my grandparents, and as it happens, our place overlooked the synagogue. So I still couldn't make out what was happening. So we stayed in the flat, in the flat, and next thing, after an hour or two, one of the, my mother, grandfather, somebody said, have a look, because the, the synagogue of ours had little twin towers, and you could see little curls of smoke coming up, and the synagogue was on fire, because if you know, they set fire to practically all synagogues in Germany, it's supposed to be in the, the uprising of the German people, because it's well organized, you know. And my, my grandfather... I mean, we always thought we were German, and my father. But my father always had more, let's say, left-wing views. My, my grandfather was really out-and-out out German. You know, he was always a nationalist. And for the first time ever in my life, I'd seen my grandfather cry. When he seen the synagogue on fire, he actually cried. And I mean, you're not a particularly religious man, you know, you're an orthodox, nothing like that, you know, but... He did cry for the first time in my life. In addition to seeing his grandfather, a proud German, cry, Rudolf also remembers a terrifying incident of mob mentality that changed his life. So we stayed in, this flat, in our flat all day. We didn't 
couldn't move anywhere. And in the afternoon, one stage, you could hear like a buzz, you know, and couldn't make out what this was. And in the end, we saw people in the corner. There's a mass of people, 100, 200, 300 people, coming down the road towards our block of flats. Well, it appears that a woman, a Jewish woman in our town, she'd gone out like my mother had gone for us, looking for husband, husband had gone somewhere, not come back. She didn't realize the situation. And as she went out around town, a crowd started following her, first one, two, three. In the end, two, three hundred people all jeering and shouting, whatever they shouted. And, and she happened to come past our place and the crowd followed us like a swarm of bees following somebody, you know. And in the end, somebody just opened the door a little bit in one of the blocks of flats and let her in. And that's, then the crowd just dispersed. But I've never seen any like it since or before. The mass hysteria does, absolutely. So anyway, from that day onwards, Kristallnacht, didn't go to school no more. School was finished. And our, our life just changed completely. John Grenville, who would go on to become an eminent professor of modern history, was one of the thousands of children whose fathers were arrested that day. Here's what he remembers. Uh, I remember walking back. It must be November the 10th or 9th. 9th or 10th that I left the school. I remember walking down the street and seeing the um, shattered shops and the owners, the Jewish owners, clearing up the glass in front and people standing around, silent, not saying anything. Complete silence. Nobody said anything. Kristallnacht itself was quite a traumatic experience because that afternoon the Gestapo called for my father who was taken to a concentration camp and my mother and her three children, my two brothers, were left alone. Um, I knew he'd been taken to a concentration camp um, and eventually we got a message from him from the camp. Uh, Oranienburg, I think it was, in the outskirts of Berlin. And then he was in that camp, I think, about 10 or 12 weeks. And I remember looking out of the window, and suddenly I saw him crossing the road towards the house, uh, towards the flat, the apartment house, and looking terrible, you know, um, badly wounded on his hand. Um, quite transformed. And that was a shock, you know. One's father was always a person one regarded as one was completely secure as long as one's father was there. And I realized that he couldn't protect himself or protect us. I hate concluding this episode about what was left behind with stories about what were probably the worst memories that these children have of the places they once called home. 
trawling through the Refugee Voices archive to put this episode together, I came across so many descriptions of home life, schools, sports and hobbies, religious festivals, Jewish youth movements, siblings, grandparents, you name it. Joyous things, mundane things, the stuff of ordinary life. This is what was left behind. But here's the thing about the November pogrom, the night of the 9th and 10th of November, 1938. To understand the kinder transport, there's no getting around it. This was when everything changed. For one thing, it was what prompted British policymakers to finally seriously deliberate the idea of trying to rescue Jewish children. And from the perspective of the parents of the children who came to Britain on the kinder transport, we can hear it in the testimonies of Rudolf Goldberg and John Grenville. This was when the penny finally dropped. The idea of sending off their children unaccompanied to a foreign country no longer seemed absurd. It was now the best option for ensuring their survival. One quick postscript about the Neu Synagogue, that grand symbol of German Jewry in all its complexity. Like most synagogues that night, it was severely vandalized by a mob. They intended to burn it down, but before they could, a police officer arrived and ordered the crowd to disperse. The building was a protected historical landmark, he told them, a claim that had no basis at all. The building suffered more severe damage later in the war as a result of Allied bombing, but it still stands today, restored and open to visitors. Its legacy also persists here in London at the Belsize Square Synagogue, which was established by Jewish refugees from Germany and Austria. Belsize Square continues the same liberal traditions and musical services that the Neu Synagogue was known for. Ursula Gilbert, who we heard from earlier, sharing her memories of the Neu Synagogue, has been a longtime member of Belsize Square. She chose that synagogue, she says, because it reminded her of her childhood synagogue. She felt at home there. This podcast is a production of the Association of Jewish Refugees. We are a charity supporting Holocaust refugees and survivors living in Great Britain. Learn more about our work at ajr.org.uk. Thanks to my colleague and Refugee Voices founding director, Bea Lefkowitz, for her support, and to Anthony Grenville for his contribution to this episode. Post-production by Ross Winter at Podcast Polishing. To learn more about the stories of the kinder transport refugees you heard from in this episode, please visit ajrrefugeevoices.org.uk. And if you enjoy listening to this podcast, please help us spread the word about it. And we'd greatly appreciate it if you would rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.